Do Chinese-made vaccines cause cancer? A thousand Chinese citizens and their families suspect just that. Reports show hundreds of children were found to get diabetes after getting the jab. We spoke with victims to find out more. Defense chiefs from two of the world's top biggest economies met in person for the first time in years. During the talks, their exchange soon turned heated over Taiwan. We will fight at all costs. Successes and setbacks. The Chinese Communist Party has seen both as it moves forward with goals in the Indo-Pacific region. What is Beijing planning next? An expert breaks it down. And a video on social media depicts a Uyghur family as they smile and dance. But some reveal there's more to the clip than meets the eye. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Controversial reports are brewing in China over alleged after effects of getting doses of Chinese-made vaccines against COVID-19. At least a thousand Chinese citizens were reportedly diagnosed with leukemia after getting the jab, while 600 children were found to get diabetes after the shots. We spoke with relatives of some of the victims for more details. My wife received the vaccine on April 8th and started to have symptoms on April 9th. She was diagnosed with acute B lymphoblastic leukemia. A month and a half later, Miss Zhang passed away, leaving behind her husband and two young children. Her husband said she was in good health before getting a Chinese-made vaccine. In northern China's Hebei province, Miss Yin is fighting the same disease. She received her second dose of the Sinopharm vaccine on May 1st of last year. Later, she was diagnosed with acute B lymphoblastic leukemia. My wife felt breathlessness after the vaccine shots. Then she started to cough. We didn't take it seriously in the beginning and treated it as a cold, but it wasn't getting any better, and she started to have back pain. We then had her checked out and found out it was a blood issue. Her platelet count was only a little over 30. The doctor said it looked like an acute disease. Miss Yin was also said to be healthy before getting vaccinated and has no family history of leukemia. The two women are far from alone in their misfortune. Recently, patients from across China co-signed a public letter accusing Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines of causing leukemia. The document said more than a thousand patients were impacted and that such a large number of similar reports can't be written off as coincidence. The letter explains most of the patients started to show symptoms a few days after getting the vaccine, and the oldest among them is over 70, while the youngest is just three years old. Virtually all of the patients also got the same appraisal from their local disease control centers, that their symptoms had nothing to do with the vaccines. The letter became one of the most searched topics on Chinese social media platforms, but was later wiped from the website. They said it was purely coincidence that the vaccine shot was taken around the time when the disease started. That's their appraisal. They meant that you'd have the disease with or without the vaccine shots. They made the vaccine sound innocent. But it's more than cancer. Another letter was posted online in late May. It called attention to cases of type 1 diabetes that developed in children after they got vaccinated. The letter was written by parents of over 600 affected children across the country. Most of the sick children were injected with the Sinovac vaccine between October 2021 and May 2022. Like the leukemia patients, local authorities also told their parents that it had nothing to do with vaccines. While patients' families seek out help and justice, Chinese authorities may be scrambling to silence them.
Some report being threatened by police, having their online posts removed by web censors, and having their social media group chats shut down. I know the path to seek justice will be tough, but I will continue the journey because I lost my wife. It's not a matter of money. The patients and their families say media outlets inside China have largely refused to report on the issue, while attorneys opted not to represent them. They believe that's out of fear of suppression or retaliation from the communist regime. In the first face-to-face -face meeting between U.S. and Chinese military chiefs, one thing stands out, arguments over Taiwan. Here's how Beijing reacted after America expressed its support for the island. The U.S. and its allies traded barbs with China at a security meeting in Singapore on Saturday. While the war in Ukraine dominated proceedings at the Shangri-La Dialogue, Taiwan was also a sticking point. U.S. Defense Chief Lloyd Austin said Washington would continue to support Taiwan. Part of our one China policy, we will continue to fulfill our commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act. And that includes assisting Taiwan in maintaining a sufficient self-defense capability. And it means maintaining our own capacity to resist any use of force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security or the social or economic system of the people of Taiwan. China claims self-ruled Taiwan as its own and has vowed to take it by force if needed. A senior Chinese military officer told reporters Austin's speech was confrontational. He expressed strong dissatisfaction and firm opposition to what he called the many unfounded accusations against China. The defense minister of Japan, Nobuo Kishi, one of Washington's closest allies in Asia, also told the meeting that military partnership between China and Russia was worrying. Over the past few months, China and the U.S. have clashed over everything, from Taiwan and China's human rights record to its military activity in the South China Sea. A day after Austin's speech, China's defense minister confirmed his stance on Taiwan. If anyone dares to secede Taiwan from China, we will not hesitate to fight. We will fight at all costs, and we will fight to the very end. This is the only choice for China. While Austin stressed the need for multilateral partnerships with nations in the Indo-Pacific, Wei suggested it was an attempt to back China into a corner. He also complained to Austin about Washington's latest arms sale to Taiwan. One day ahead of the security summit, the U.S. approved an over $100 million sale. The State Department says the deal was to help maintain Taiwan's warships and enhance its ability to meet current and future threats. China says it firmly opposes and condemns the deal. China and Russia's shows of force are raising security concerns in East Asia, and Japan is feeling the impact. Nevertheless, at present, not only is Japan surrounded by actors that both possess or are developing nuclear weapons and ignoring the rules, but also year by year they are becoming more open in their disregard for them. Just this May, the same day President Biden met leaders from Japan, India and Australia, China and Russia strategic bombers flew over the Sea of Japan. Japan's defense minister said he called on Beijing to use self-restraint over the East and South China Seas. He also expressed concerns to his Chinese counterpart over the military exercises. The defense ministry said Tokyo saw the exercises as a demonstration against Japan. 
There is a possibility that Sino-Russian ties may deepen further, and there is no doubt that many countries are increasingly concerned by the joint military activities conducted by China and Russia, two major military powers. Japan also confirmed its position on Taiwan. Kishi said peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait are critical for both Japan and the international community. An independent international security analyst is sharing his take on what might happen if Beijing invades Taiwan. Richard Bitzinger says he believes Japan might step in to help the island. This is that the Japanese might simply look at a pro-China Taiwan that is a, a, a Taiwan occupied and controlled by the mainland, as a real new threat on their southern flank. And so they might want to be much more uh, forward and forthright about uh, working with the Taiwanese to defend them, at the same time that obviously the United States would be involved too. Some of Japan's islands are just a few hundred miles from Taiwan. In the face of Beijing's increasing aggressiveness towards Taiwan and in the South China Sea, Bitzinger says Japan is keen to greatly add to its defense spending. That could mean a boost from the current 1% of the country's output to possibly 2%. This would mark a significant jump, as Japan has the third highest GDP in the world. For the first time in three years, China's defense minister met with his Australian counterpart. Lots of issues were brought up during the meeting, including the recent Australian aircraft incident linked to the Chinese Air Force. Here's more. After more than two years, Australia and China's defense minister met for talks over the weekend. The two ministers spoke in Singapore about the recent Australian P-8 aircraft incident, among other issues. Both countries play critical roles in the Indo-Pacific region. For one, China is Australia's largest trading partner. Australian Defense Minister Richard Marles said he saw the meeting as a critical first step toward improving China-Australia relations. Though the new Australian minister cast his concerns about recent global issues after the meeting. The war in Ukraine has made it clear uh, that there are countries, in this case Russia, which seek to challenge the global rules-based order. Marles emphasised the importance of the global rules-based order. But the global rules-based order uh, and the idea that uh, countries are able to negotiate their differences with each other on the basis of rules as opposed to the basis of power is what has underpinned prosperity and stability within our region. Marles also addressed the Chinese military's frequent aggressive moves in the Indo-Pacific region. Indeed, the military build-up of China is the largest build-up of military that we have seen since the end of the Second World War. But this must happen with transparency. It must happen in combination with reassuring statecraft so that neighbours and other countries have a sense of comfort about their own future and destiny in the face of that. Back in 2020, Australia's former Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an international investigation into the origins of the Chinese Communist Party virus, which causes COVID-19. Since then, China has placed higher tariffs on certain Australian imports. What's more, some Australian citizens have been detained in China, including one journalist. 
Next, news from Australia's neighbour, New Zealand. The country's Minister of Defence said over the weekend that he believes in the sovereignty of the Pacific Island nations, adding they can make their own decisions about whether or not to get involved with China, and that it was not in anyone's interest to try to coerce a certain outcome. My point to them was very clear that uh, we support independence, we support sovereign nations and sovereign states like the many in the Pacific. Our job is to support them to make sure that they make strong decisions for themselves. China signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands earlier this year. The U.S., Australia and New Zealand have gone on high alert, fearing the deal would allow Beijing to strengthen its military presence in the area. That's because Chinese military buildup in the Solomon Islands would push Beijing's threat geographically closer to their territories. Next, more on the Indo-Pacific region from independent international security analyst Richard Bitzinger. He says the Indo-Pacific region seems to be coming back in the spotlight as defense ministers meet in Singapore. Uh, of course, all eyes right now are on Ukraine, and, and well, they should be. But, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific is still probably where the future of, I guess you'd say, superpower uh, great games are going on and probably will continue to be. President Biden visited Tokyo for the Quad Summit, alongside prime ministers from India and Australia. Over on the Chinese side, Beijing signed a security deal with the Solomon Islands last month. It could strengthen Beijing's military presence in the region. At the same time, the Chinese foreign minister recently paid a visit to 10 Pacific Island nations, encouraging them to join a similar security and economics deal. But that agreement fell through. Since this is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the Chinese uh, backyard or increasingly where they want to be, I mean, they're not going to just simply go away. They're going to lick their wounds and, and come back again. For now, Indo-Pacific nations are keeping a close watch of Beijing's next move. Earlier this month, a video appeared on social media appearing to show a happy family in Xinjiang. Ladies and gentlemen, the party is heating up in this ordinary Kazakh house. Though seniors and children were seen smiling and dancing a traditional Kazakh dance, something seems off in the atmosphere. Around 53 seconds into the video, what looks like police are spotted standing outside the window, closely monitoring what's happening inside the house. According to Radio Free Asia, the video was originally posted on YouTube by Jerry Good, a foreign internet celebrity living in China. He visited Xinjiang, supposedly to provide proof that the Chinese Communist Party was not committing genocide against the Uyghur ethnic minority. President of the Uyghur Association of Japan told Radio Free Asia that in the current tightly controlled Xinjiang, it's impossible for a foreigner to enter, leave and film freely. And that Jerry Good is a foreigner manipulated by Beijing. The video was later taken down from YouTube. If the so-called proof was indeed staged by the Chinese regime, it wouldn't be the first. Last year, China promoted a series of videos in which Uyghurs denied that Beijing was committing human rights violations. Coming up, health officials in Beijing are zeroing in on a local bar. They say an explosive round of virus cases are linked to the building. That's after the city lifted pandemic restrictions less than a week ago. Find out more after the break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A cheap liquor bar in Beijing is putting authorities on high alert. Authorities say a virus outbreak linked to the bar is explosive. Here's how it's impacting millions in Beijing as officials are racing to contain it. This is where a cluster of COVID-19 cases has been found in Beijing, the 24-hour Heaven Supermarket Bar, known for cheap liquor and big crowds. It had just reopened as curbs in the Chinese capital eased last week. Authorities are now racing to contain the outbreak. Millions are facing mandatory testing and thousands are under targeted lockdowns. Nearly 200 cases were linked to the bar since June 9. Officials have said people infected live or work in 14 of the capital's 16 districts. Authorities have described the outbreak as ferocious and explosive. The re-emergence of COVID infections highlights how hard it will be for China to make a success of its zero-COVID policy and raises new concerns about the outlook for the world's second-largest economy. Mark Delort works in Beijing. You know, I mean, if you have to follow the, uh, the zero-COVID policy, then you have to be, I would say, more, to pay more, more attention on uh, the way you reopen the uh, restaurant, the bar, the, and the uh, discotheque and so on. Today, they reopened maybe too quickly, and now we are back, we are back into a, a quite difficult situation, in, special, in particular for, uh, for the, uh, the, the company which are working in Beijing. Chaoyang, where the bar cluster was discovered, kicked off a three-day mass testing campaign among its roughly 3.5 million residents on Monday. About 10,000 close contacts of the bar's patrons have been identified and their residential buildings put under lockdown. Some planned school reopenings in the district have also been postponed. Officials have not commented on the exact cause of the bar outbreak, nor explained why they are not yet reinstating the level of curbs seen last month. Communist leader Xi Jinping's zero-COVID-19 policy has pushed China into dangerous territory. But now, there may be no turning back. We spoke with Professor Gregory Moore, who sheds light on why Beijing may no longer be able to reverse course on the policy. With COVID now becoming the economic catastrophe that many people are saying that's happening in China, as well as the social control side of things. Where do you see the, the regime going with, with, with this whole, is, is there going to be an implosion at some point? I think part of it is regime security, trying to show we're in control, that kind of stuff. And, and part of it is just maybe their misguided philosophy that the state has all the answers, the party, you know, that you trust us, we'll solve every problem. China certainly buys into that left side of that, that it's always got to be the state because you can't trust people or whatever their rationale is there. Um, I do think that this the zero COVID policy is destroying the economy. Omicron is so benign compared to the original variant. It just seems so over the top for the rest of the world. We all see that. But in the political system they have, I think for Xi Jinping, he cannot back away from COVID, zero COVID policy because that's what he said. That's what they've got to do. And to step back from that would be politically a retreat. And that's not something he wants to do. So he's going to keep pushing it as far as he has to. If that destroys the economy, he will. You live through two or three leadership of the, the, the CCP now, mm -hmm. right? What have you noticed different from 
the previous ones to Xi Jinping over these 10 years now from versus their time in power. It wasn't like Xi Jinping made all the changes and was totally different. It was already going in that direction. But when he came in 2012 and deeper in 2014, um, many people thought he might be more pragmatic, more of a technocrat, but he's really become much more dogmatic, state centered, like the economy is returning on the spectrum from laissez-faire free market to um, to central planned. You know, it, it, it had moved more towards the laissez-faire. Now it's going back to centrally planned. It's, it's still market principles, but the state's taking the lead yeah. and state run companies are in the driver's seat uh, economically. And that's all bad for the economy. Professor Gregory Moore also talks about Chinese students' understanding of democracy. Based on his experience of teaching in China, he says their idea of democracy is not the same one found in the U.S. Here's more. Dr. Moore, tell us about your experience in China. You said you taught in the Yang Party Cager School. Uh, what was that experience like? I worked at Zhejiang University for five years in the political science department there. Um, and so one of the things I did was I taught at night school for party cadres, a, a class about kind of comparative politics, comparative public administration. Um, but that was just a short sort of extra duty. Mainly I was teaching international relations, research methods, theories. I taught American politics and U.S. government, which is very interesting to teach that in China. That was part of the class. I mean, teaching American history and American politics. Of course, you're going to talk about freedom of speech and all those things. So, and I found the students pretty open-minded, and um, it was a, overall it was a good experience. Do you think Americans understand China to the same level that they understand mm. us? It's really interesting because on the surface of things, in some ways, it might seem the Chinese understand here better because they watch our movies. Mm. You know, they consume more of our media than we do them. So at that level, I would say the average Chinese person probably knows more about the U.S. than Americans know about China. That's true. But for the uh, like the think tank people, the university professors, you know, a lot of them did studies over here, speak English and they, they know U.S. pretty well. Mm. But, you know, it's that deep culture stuff. Do you really, really know the U.S. Um, or not? I mean, I would say there's a limited understanding because when I was in China, I would teach concepts like democracy, and I could see none of my students understood democracy. They understood what the Communist Party told them democracy was, which is sort of like, a, in political science terms, sort of like a Rousseauian direct democracy, like New England town hall meetings where everybody's participating and it's chaotic. And they might say, oh, it works in a little town, but it would never work in China. But they, they never understand a kind of Burkean conservatism or a Burkean democracy, which is a representative democracy, which is what the United States has. Uh, Republican democracy, they, they totally don't get that. I was there long enough for 14 years that I, I think I'm pretty confident what I'm saying that the, the Chinese, even the scholars, I kind of feel like most of them really don't understand American democracy. Um, and that's their disadvantage. I mean, it's it's hard for them to read us when they don't get that. Does, does so, that explain why you often hear Chinese students when you ask them, you know, do you want democracy in China? And they say, well, it doesn't work. Like you said, it doesn't yep. work in China. What has created that condition for them to think that way? I think mostly it's propaganda. It's socialization that they've had in their education system and their history books and their politics education. Um, and, 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 you know, some of them have come over here to study, a lot of them have, and they tend to live in groups and not integrate so deeply into American culture. They still tend to consume their media through Chinese sources, WeChat and stuff like that. So 
Um, that's what I would say. It's just kind of a misunderstanding, but pars- it's also socialization from the state to get them to believe that. That's, that's an important part of it, too, I think. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.